Welcome to Conversations in Clinical Trial Readiness, a series featuring life science executives who share their stories and insights related to clinical operations and clinical trial readiness. My name is Kelly Rich. I'm the EVP of Product and Clinical Research Solutions at Archimedics and your host of this series. Today, we're sitting down with Knall Sampet, Director of Clinical Operations at Cerebell. Cerebell is focused on making EEG widely accessible, more efficient, and more cost-effective to improve the diagnosis and treatment of patients at risk for seizures. They've created and validated an FDA-cleared instant EEG system that doesn't require an EEG technologist or specialist interpreter, which allows for faster results and clinical decision-making. Kanal is also the host of the Clinical Trial Podcast. His show focuses on helping others accelerate their clinical research careers and features informative interviews from sponsors, clinical research organizations, and clinical trial sites from around the globe. Today, we'll be discussing the evolution of the clinical operations director, what sites need to address in order to adapt new technology, how to maintain patient recruitment and patient retention, especially in the midst of a global pandemic, and common issues with clinical sites and what to look forward to in the future for effective clinical operations. This is Kelly Rich, and I'm here today with Kanal Sampet, the clinical operations director from Cerebell and the host of the Clinical Trial Podcast. Kanal, could you uh, introduce yourself to our guests and give us yes. a little background? Sure. Thank you so much, Kelly, for having me on the show. Um, as, as you said, I, I work at uh, Cerebell as a clinical ops director, and uh, Cerebell is, a, is an early state startup company. And, uh, and I also have a podcast where I host, uh, you know, where I talk about clinical operations and clinical trials. It's called the Clinical Trial Podcast. And, uh, you know, my, my background is in engineering and computer science. So I'm very close to technology. Uh, and, and I love when people bring technology into clinical research. And, and I'm just excited to talk to you more about it today. Yeah, thanks so much. Glad to be here, too. Um, you know, no one would describe this year as typical. So what have been your sort of key learnings this past year? Sure. So, um, you know, my learnings have obviously evolved uh, quite a bit and they're always changing as, as, we, as we go through, through COVID. But, but also aside from COVID, I feel uh, one of the things that people in, in any industry and specifically in research need to do is, um, I, I don't know if you saw there was data on, from ACRP that showed that how many sites were going out of business. Uh, and and I think my my takeaway from that uh, that type of um, you know messaging from ACRP was if you don't adapt you will die. <laughs> uh, so so I think it's so critical for organizations of all sizes, not just sites but also sponsors uh, that have raised millions of dollars from uh, venture capitalist companies and and you know you kind of uh, have to make sure you're being a good steward of those finances. And how are you going to adapt your strategy so you can move fast in spite of all the challenges that you're facing, uh, you know, or the industry is facing in general because of COVID? And then uh, the second thing I felt is like just owning my decisions. Uh, I think we all make mistakes. We're all human beings and, and failure is, is part of what, what makes us better. And, and I think just owning my decisions has been a key part of, um, you know, this year's, you know, takeaway. And, and then finally, I feel like prioritizing my relationships has never been more important today than ever. I think living in the Zoom world uh, where we're always talking virtually, can't attend conferences, can't have, uh, you know, heart-to-heart conversations at a bar or, you know, at, at a restaurant. And I think just focusing on ways I can, uh, you know, build my relationships and stay in touch with people uh, is, is, is more critical than ever. Absolutely. Yeah, I felt that too. And 
uh, I've also felt that it's almost easier sometimes though, because people do a little bit have their guard down in this difficult time. Uh, so although we have to be creative, yeah, they've, they've, uh, then at least open and, and willing. So you, you mentioned adaptability, you know, or adapt and die, or die. Um, specifically in your role. How do you think that it has had to evolve this year? Um, so specifically in my role, just kind of trying to adapt and die. I, I feel like so. So let me give you an example. When sites when we're doing site initiation visits uh, mm-hmm. with clinical trial sites, uh, one of the things that we've had in the past, we could just travel to the site and do these visits, right? And, yeah. and now you can do that, or you're restricted in in what you can and cannot do depending on what state the site is located. So if you're a sponsor. Uh, you know, depending upon the the how big the site is, like if it's the 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 big hospitals of in in the country, like the Stanford Hospital or you know you know University of California uh, or the Harvards and and so on, you may be restricted on what you can and cannot do. Uh, versus smaller sites, you might be able to get in. So how are you going? So I've been thinking about like how can I creatively. Uh, be able to do the site initiation trainings, uh, especially uh, when, uh, you know, there was one site specifically I worked with right before COVID. So early March, we had our visit and now we were, now we're in October or September. Yeah. And they're, they're basically trying to get live and they've already forgotten all the things that they learned. So how can I make sure that they're ready to enroll patients? So I've been thinking about how can I incorporate video uh, in my training? How can I, um, you know, create some training materials in advance that they can watch on demand rather than having to, uh, you know, get people to show up, like 20 people to show up on a Zoom call for an hour, or even 30 minutes is, is next to impossible. So I've been thinking about like how create creative ways on how I can engage with, with my sites. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Certainly, that's the space we're in, right? Asynchronous on demand uh, to really help uh, the sites who are obviously uh, bearing a lot of the brunt of this, you know, difficult time. So you've you've given us an opening there, but as, if we switch and really pivot and talk more and more about technology, what do the sites need to address in order to successfully adapt during this time? Yeah, so there's two things I feel. One is really understanding your workflow. I feel a lot of sites have no clarity on their workflow because they're just so busy, like doing all the work. Um, I've actually interacted with a, a couple, like a, a big hospital, actually two big hospitals, in just in the last week. And I don't want to name the sites, but they they are overwhelmed. Uh, they they just have a lot going on in their plate, and the PIs are kind of disconnected because they have a clinical practice that they're trying to manage, and and, and that's kind of their focus. But the research is also equally important for them, but they don't really have the time to to work with the coordinator to to figure out what is the ideal or optimized workflow. Um, and, and, and I think just looking at like, how are we going to engage with sponsors and how are we going to do our trainings and how are we going to do our monitoring visits and how are we going to maintain internal communication with the IRB, uh, you know, in a remote setting with some of these coordinators that might still be remote or might not be coming in on a full-time basis. Right. So how are we going to, you know, what's our workflow in this new world? Right. Uh, people might be furloughed. So what's, what, how is that going to impact our workflow? And then the second thing is, is investing in like technology and systems. And, and once you kind of know your workflow, then you kind of go and look for systems that will help you fill that gap. Uh, you know, so, so I think those are the two things that can benefit sites greatly. Um, you know, sites are just, um, you know, they have a lot going on and I feel like sponsors have a lot of the resources, uh, from a financial standpoint and the site, you know, there might be only a couple of people that are kind of trying to do everything and that needs to change pretty quickly. I would say, uh, you know, even though we have technology, but sites also need, um, you know, resources to kind of get their work done. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I was I was thinking as you spoke, like, is it really fair to pose this question and focus on the sites and what they have to do? I mean, what do the rest of us have to do who depend so heavily on the site's success? Maybe you can speak to that. Obviously, Absolutely. the sites have many things to do, but what do the rest of us have to do to help them? Absolutely. So as a sponsor or a CRO, I think you have a massive responsibility of like anytime you make a decision about anything, uh, you want to think about what can I do to reduce the site workload? Uh, I think we kind of feel like, yeah, we're going to pay the sites, you know, X amount of dollars to enroll a patient and we're going to pay them like $5,000, $10,000 in startup fee. And we just expect them to do everything. Um, I was, I'm actually working on a program where this, uh, you know, there is about, I would say, um, I think 16 vendors on this, in this project. And there's one site. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's many sites in the trial, but there's one site working with 16 vendors. It's kind of overwhelming for the site. So as a vendor, what are the things that you can do to make it easy for your site to, to work with you, right? So you could be a technology vendor. You could be just a CRO that's providing clinical trial or operation services, or you could be the sponsor. Um, and, and so one of the things you could do is create checklists, um, you know, that will enable the site to kind of work with you much easily. And they kind of know what to expect from you as a vendor and, and vice versa, um, yeah. you know, and, 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 uh, and doing the same thing, like from a workflow standpoint, like what are the, how can you minimize the number of touch points with the site so that they don't get overwhelmed? Uh, and, and what are the things that you can do internally before that you can just say, Hey, you know, email the site and, and try to get your, all these action items completed. Um, Email is a terrible tool to just manage all this, I feel. And, and uh, we that's a completely different conversation. But um, I just feel like sponsors and CROs and any vendor is just like, hey, site, do this. And, and now we're, enrollment isn't moving forward. Sites are not getting activated in a timely manner. And then people will say, oh, because the sites didn't do their part. Uh, but what, what have you done as a sponsor or a CRO or a vendor to reduce the burden on the site. So really looking at that very critically is what I challenge, uh, you know, the industry to do. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, we're all in this together and have a lot riding on all of these clinical trial programs moving forward. So those are, those are good points. Thank you. Um, you know, you, you, you touched on it a little bit, but at the end of the day, we need patients, right? We need to enroll patients and we need to maintain patients. Um, what have you tried that has worked in terms of maintaining recruitment as well as retention? Yeah, so uh, those strategies really, in my opinion, haven't changed. I was actually on a, in a Facebook group just the other day, and I was just kind of seeing what the coordinators were talking about. And and somebody asked, you know, have you seen like issues with patient recruitment and, and re engagement? And the answer was no. They they are they are seeing patients come through the door, and and patients want to get you know want to participate in the trial because those diseases haven't gone away. They're they're still sick, or they still need help. Uh, you know, whatever the case, or they're just motivated to to help, you know, and be part of research. Um, I feel like talking to sites periodically is essential. Uh, you know, as a sponsor or a CRO, even though you you know your sites might not be back because of you know in, into full like um, full recruitment mode because of COVID, really keeping in touch with them is is really critical. So I basically pick up the phone and start talking to them. Uh, you know, on a, on a weekly basis and like asking them, you know, how are they doing? What's new? Uh, how can we kind of keep things moving forward uh, and being front and center with them? Uh, providing tools to sites is, is really important. So this is something like I used to do back when I was uh, working at Abbott. And I, I feel like this is still valid, like just giving sites uh, a way to like, you know, 
to engage with patients. So we created patient-facing materials for the site, or we created like a little tracker for the sites to know when the follow-up visits for those patients will, will happen. So the site, some, some of the sites are not as sophisticated. So giving them the tools that will help them is, is, is really critical. And then thirdly, um, you know, one of the things, my favorite strategies for patient recruitment is, you know, making the sites our hero. Uh, and, and getting them on webinars, uh, and, and, you know, such as the one, you know, we're doing this podcasting uh, as we speak, but, but scheduling like site-wide webinars and then letting sites share the experience with other sites. Uh, because if, if you know, site A is looking for help, they know that you as a sponsor or a vendor can, can only help them to a certain extent. When it comes to getting the work done in the trenches with recruitment and engagement, it's only another site's experience is what's going to matter the most to them. So, you know, kind of creating a formal uh, setup where sites can participate, you know, and having a community around it and, and letting them exchange information with each other rather than you as a sponsor or CRO putting, um, you know, things down their throat <laughs> uh, is, yeah. is, not, is not what's going to work. So, so those would be like the three things I feel like uh, can definitely, I, I feel like have and will continue to help with patient recruitment and engagement. Yeah, creating a, a shared community, I can imagine, yeah, really helps them feel like they're in it with, with others and, and uh, sharing the burden. Yeah. And I think when you try to create that community, you want to, again, think about how can I reduce the workload for the site? You don't want them to like create all these slides for you so then they can go and present to another site. Like don't try to offload that responsibility to the site, but really like just something simple I've done is like I've created like a three slide presentation with three questions. And then I would basically get on a webinar and say, hey, site A, can you answer the first question? Can you answer the second question? Can you answer the third question? And then they'll just answer the questions and, you know, make sure your question are broad uh, so they can share, uh, you know, important nuggets as, as they relate to patient recruitment and engagement or, or just anything about operations. Yeah, fleshing out those best practice nuggets that, that maybe some of your less experienced or less sophisticated sites wouldn't come up with on their own. But uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. Definitely. We've talked a lot already today about like all the common issues you're seeing at the different sites. But maybe you have like a specific scenario where you tried some things that maybe are new to our audience and had a good outcome. Do you have an example, like a specific example where you've worked through a challenge and, and been able to come out with a good outcome? Uh, I feel like video technology is super powerful uh, just to communicate with people. I was working, this is not, uh, this was like, I think right before the pandemic, but I think it would still work uh, today is I w- we were trying to get, uh, you know, train sites on a clinical trial process and, and like the way they should place the device uh, on the patient's forehead, for example. So I just made a video uh, explaining how to do it. And then we just put the video on, on Dropbox and then sent the link to the site. Uh, you can even put the video on Vimeo or YouTube and mark it as unlisted or private. Um, you know, you, there's ways to do that. Uh, and, and creating a video library for sites to then quickly like, understand like how to do things rather than trying to always explain things in words you know as a as a clinical research industry we've historically like put documents together and with images and all this i mean images were like the next level but now i think we're talking about video and how can you incorporate video in your communication it's just easy for the other person to visualize what you're trying to say uh yeah the documents are important but those are more like for you to cover yourself up i think people use that but they don't really think about like, you know, videos. And I feel like the FDA would probably be open like to a video training. I mean, FDA themselves has a lot of video training on their website. 
so, you know, if people are concerned about like, hey, you know, does video count as training? Of course it does. And you could train people through through video. Uh, so I feel like I had success in just communicating with the site through video. I was talking to the PI and then the PI forwarded the video to uh, all the fellows and the residents. And then those fellows and residents could quickly get up to speed. And there's probably like 20, 30 people on their team. Uh, you know, it's, it's a waste of all their time to come on a call and it's hard to coordinate these calls so they could watch this on demand. Um, and they knew that this tool existed. Um, and then once you have the tool and you create these videos, you know, I think you kind of need to think like a marketer and how can you keep promoting those videos again and again and making sure they remain front and center with your sites. You don't need to create a lot of tools, but as long as you create the right tools to, to bring them in front of your sites, uh, it can be a huge help to them. So that, that's kind of what yeah, I Yeah, like absolutely. And especially you talked about when we opened up, just the stopping and starting that they've had to endure means that some of that information gets rusty for them. And having these these tools that persist but are really accessible can, you know, really, you know, help them get the dust, the rust off when they uh, get started back up. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about technology and the, the pressures on sites, as well as the rest of the, the things that all of us need to do to reduce that burden. Um but that like sort of leaves us wanting to kind of paint a picture of what do we see in the future for effective clinical operations? What What is it going to look like um, and how is it different than today? Yeah, so I, I think some other things that are going to obviously technology continues to be a huge part of what we do and it just is, is ramping up. I, I was just talking to a CEO of another tech company that's operating in the clinical trial space and he said the pandemic has basically helped shrink the, the adoption of technology significantly. Like he said, things that we were like thinking three years down the road are now like three months <laughs> uh, yeah. because the adoption is, is the, the pandemic has forced people to adopt this technology, which is awesome. Um, I think the the next challenge is how can we get the technology tools to talk to each other? Uh, you know, I, I feel like we shouldn't, I mean, this is like people are talking about this all the time is like not having to do manual work. <laughs> uh, so if technology can talk to each other, uh, there's already like, you know, as long as there's APIs that are open between tech vendors that allow for information to flow from one database or one company to another company, I think is going to be really critical to, to kind of bridge that gap. Um, and the second thing is I feel the evolution of the CRA role, uh, you know, the remote monitoring, the, the visits are going away, the site visits. So a lot of people are doing remote monitoring. Uh, but I just think that the CRA role is going to evolve and will continue to revolve quite rapidly. Uh, I think people are still stuck in this old CRA type of mindset of like going in-person monitoring and doing this and that that you used to do. Um, I think CRAs will have to be more technology savvy. Uh, they will have, it doesn't mean you're going to work harder. It just means you have to work differently. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that change is, is going to happen. Uh, I think one of the ways a CRA can be extremely successful in what they do is, is learning technology and really investing a few hours a week to, to learn how they can leverage technology to help their sites. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of uh, how things are going to evolve, I feel. Yeah, I think those are very good examples. Interconnectedness and automation would certainly help uh, alleviate a lot of the burdens we've discussed today um, because it would streamline you know, workflow, like you mentioned, and really let those sites and CRAs focus on those tasks that are most critical for their skill sets um, and that can't be replaced by the technology. So 
think those are all great points. Yeah, um, and I just would like the EDC to the data entry to just disappear. That's like, uh, yeah. I, you know, we we can't have our coordinators, you know, do data entry by reading the source and then putting stuff in this this database. It's such a waste of human power, and and you know, I would rather have those folks just enjoy life and do other things that that, that are more important to the organization rather than spend all this time you know, duplicating information uh, into another database. So I'm just excited yeah. about that. Well, let's spend a minute there then. I've, I've spent a lot of time in that space actually and uh, have iterated on this where we continue to try to replace the data entry piece. But what do you think is the next biggest obstacle that's in the way uh, of moving us more from whether it's e-source or EHR or, you know, those kinds of things? What What's the next obstacle that would, you know, ramp up adoption? So I know there's been uh, there's some companies that are doing like um, EMR to um, mm-hmm. EDC kind of link up I guess the, yep. like the study database will be linked directly to uh, EMR uh, EMR I think that's like a huge step forward uh, I think some of the big companies that are in the EDC space will have to maybe just tear their product apart and rebuild it I feel like sometimes you just have to do that. Uh, and, and kind of see what, how can they stream, you know, change things uh, to, I'm probably not the best person to tell you like how that will sure, happen, yeah. but I feel like that's an area where, uh, you know, the obstacles are, you know, it, it's a product that's getting sold to sponsors uh, and CROs. So that product needs to change, right? Uh, so if mm-hmm. that product doesn't change, the sponsors are going to still keep using the same old EDC companies again and again. So, you know, we cannot, can never get out of that. So I think there's a huge responsibility on the technology vendors to, to create a solution uh, that will solve that issue rather than, um, yeah, I think that's like the big barrier or the big next step, I would say. Yeah, like you mentioned previously, when people kind of anchor to how things were done in the past, I think a lot of those platforms anchor to the idea of they're there to support data entry. And so a lot of it looks and feels like a data entry tool. But really, if you change the paradigm and eliminate data entry, then the tool can look totally different, right? Like you said, they can tear it apart um, because they're no longer sort of held to held to this idea that data entry is what this is for. It's yeah. really holding data and transposing data and transferring data. Um, anyway, I appreciate yeah. you kind of uh, diverging on that with me. So, Kanal, could you share with us some of the specific uh, clinical operations nightmares that that happened this year? Sure. I think one of the challenges has been, um, you know, once you get your clinical trials completed, there's data that you get from your trials, and then you want to get that published because if you don't get that data published, people are not going to really know what you did in the scientific community, because at the end of the, the, that's kind of the goal of any clinical trials. Yeah, it's recruitment and getting a product approved and so on, but then you have to kind of help uh, with the adoption of that product, uh, or at least like educate other clinicians about what are the results that you got from, from your trial so they can make an educated decision about whether or not this product is the right product for their patients. Uh, obviously there's, a, you know, I work in the med- medical device space, so there's a lot of competition. Um, and there's competition everywhere, but I know in the med tech space, there's, you know, like there's 10 different types of stents that a doctor could buy. So how do they know if stent A is better than stent B for their patient that's, you know, having a left main disease? So one of the things I've, I, I feel has been hard to do with the pandemic is, uh, or maybe in just in general this year, is been trying to get um, get papers accepted in a timely manner. There's delays with the reviewers uh, because they are, you know, trying to... S- 
they're also reacting to the pandemic and they're busy with their families or or you know they they haven't been able to all get into the same room to review papers together and actually brainstorm uh you know the the merit of a of a research article so i i don't know if others are having similar challenges but but the timelines have been quite long to get get feedback from from the reviewers and even when we get feedback it's uh it's it's been hard to get you know challenge some of that feedback uh, and, and get, uh, you know, then we, if they don't accept the research, then you kind of have to go to the next publication uh, to get that approved. Um, and I feel like it's hard for a lot of sponsor companies because they can't submit to two journal articles at, or two journals at the same time. Because if they did submit it to two journals, then if both of them accepted, then it would be, an, it would be a nightmare, right? You, you kind of want only one person to accept that. So I'm kind of still working through through those kinks. I feel that that's been uh, one of the the, the challenges uh, that that's been ongoing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, with all the discussion of the challenges and the obstacles and the struggles of the year, can you share a specific success story with us? Sure, I I'm going to share a Sarabel success story, and I hope my uh, my CEO will be supportive uh, here. But uh, but I feel like uh, the company has done a great job of you know I think we you know a lot of sites are having challenge or a lot of sponsors are having cha- challenges with maintaining inventory because if your production line has been closed and you can't manufacture product and you can't get product uh, you know to send to clinical trial sites and and even if you send product to clinical trial sites there's a big quarantine requirements for the product uh, that they have to be you know at the hospital for two days before they can be put in in a basket or like in a, in a box where the research staff can access the product uh, well fortunately the manufacturing side has been amazing for for Sarabel uh, and just kind of making sure the processes are, are in place to to ramp up the inventory. Uh, side of things. So if, if more patients need devices, then then we have the devices. Um, and and I, I think also like uh, just planning inventory is extremely challenging. Um, you know, for I used to work in 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 the stent uh, on stent trials before, and I remember there were like there was a matrix, a size matrix for all these stents, and there were probably sixteen different type of stent sizes that between permutation combination, and, and you have eighty sites. So you know h- how do you stock all the product in the right levels at different sites when your production has been impacted? Uh, so I feel that's a huge challenge for a lot of people, and, and kind of uh, I'm just you know amazed that that Cerebral was able to kind of move that uh, that forward uh, without any any hiccups. Yeah, good example. Thank you. Um, well, you've shared with us today, clearly your love of this industry, as well as your passion for clinical operations. And I think our audience would really benefit from maybe you sharing some of your favorite resources that help you stay up to date. Sure. So I I have nothing against like for-profit entities, uh, but I feel, uh, you know, when you go to resources, I want like non-biased information uh, as much as possible. And I'm not saying government information is non-biased, but I feel like that's how, you know, our research is based. I get the FDA or any other agency around the world is the one that's going to approve your product uh, or, you know, approve your clinical trial design. And I feel my favorite, favorite resources, resources to go to all the guidance documents that the FDA has. And they're constantly like publishing new guidance documents. I was looking at their COVID guidance document and how to do trials. And it was extremely clear, uh, at least like, 
I know there's always things that you can improve on, but they had a good frequently asked questions. They were updating those frequently asked questions so people can kind of understand how to do certain things. I feel like a lot of the listeners uh, that might be having questions on like what to do when, uh, you know, given the situation we're in, can we do remote monitoring visits without a protocol amendment? Can we, you know, see patients over the phone versus in person without a protocol amendment? Things like that, the FDA has clearly outlined in their in their guidance documents. And I'm just using that as one example. But now also there's a lot of technology like we talked about in this in this uh, in this podcast where, you know, people are now more open to using technology in clinical research than they were before the pandemic. And there's a lot of guidance documents just on the use of software as a service in in clinical trials. So definitely I encourage people to look at the FDA guidance documents and then um, my second favorite resource is ACRP. So if you're a clinical ops person, you want to definitely want to sign up for the ACRP membership. Uh, they have a ton of free resources on their website. Uh, there's webinars that they do. And I highly you know, encourage people to kind of engage with some of the materials that they put out. Uh, and they're a nonprofit. So, so that's another like reason I feel like uh, you know, they're there to solve a problem between private entities and the government. And they're kind of in the middle of that. So I, I feel like... Um, that, that's a great place to 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 check out information that whenever you you kind of feel like you're stuck. I appreciate all of your insights today and taking the time uh, to speak with us today. Where can people uh, hear your podcast and find more out uh, find out more about Cerebell? Sure. So the podcast, obviously, it's on. Uh, you know, you can listen to it on pretty much all podcasting platforms: Spotify, iTunes, uh, Android. My website is clinicaltrialpodcast.com, so it's pretty easy uh, mm-hmm. to remember. And you can go in, and there's show notes that I put on there, which are very easy to access. I try to make it as easy as possible for, for people to consume information. I know we all have limited hours in the day. Uh, yeah. So I, I try to help you know through that point. And it's all free uh, for people to, to, to look at and listen to. And uh, for Sarah Bell, I would encourage people to you know, follow on LinkedIn, uh, it's uh, the 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 name of the company, Cerebell, C E R I B E L L, uh, or visit Cerebell at cerebell.com. Um, and uh, I'm very proud to be part of that organization and 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 you know working on that mission. So uh, yeah, and and I'd love for people to stay in touch. You can connect with me on LinkedIn as well. My my uh, username is Kunal Sampad. You can just find me on there. Um, and, and keep engaging with other people, connect with other like-minded people and, and uh, do whatever it takes to help uh, move this industry forward and, uh, and the research uh, forward. So I, I encourage people to do that. Absolutely. I definitely think your uh, love and commitment to that has come through today and I look forward to future discussions. Yeah, thank you, Kelly, for having me on your, on your podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Conversations in Clinical Trial Readiness. If you're interested in learning more about our team, head to our website, archimedics.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you like what you've just heard, please share with a friend and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thanks for joining us.